0: Chapter 3, Head, Eyes, Ear, Nose, and Throat. Topic 8, Ears. This next subsection will review disorders affecting the ear. First is otitis media. Otitis media is an infection or inflammation of the middle ear. Risk factors include having a small eustachian tube, a recent upper respiratory tract infection, and immunodeficiency. If a patient has multiple episodes of otitis media with associated complications, immunodeficiency should be considered. The most common organisms causing otitis media are streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenzae, and Moraxella catarralis. Signs and symptoms of otitis media include ear pain and tugging, fever, erythema, and purulent otorrhea. Diagnosis is typically clinical, with a fundoscopic exam showing fullness and bulging of the tympanic membrane, lack of light reflex, middle ear effusion, and tympanic membrane retraction. Pneumatic otoscopy, where a puff of air is blown into the middle ear, can also be used. If the tympanic membrane does not move, it's a strong indicator of otitis media. Management of otitis media typically involves antibiotics, such as amoxicillin or azithromycin, for those allergic to penicillin. If the patient is unresponsive to initial antibiotic treatment, second-line treatments include amoxicillin clavulinate, cefuroxime, or intramuscular ceftriaxone. Complications of otitis media can include brain abscess, meningitis, mastoiditis, conductive hearing loss, tympanic membrane perforation, labyrinthitis, cholesteatoma, tympanosclerosis, orbital cellulitis, and retropharyngeal abscess. Next we will review otitis externa. Otitis externa is an infection or inflammation of the outer ear canal. Risk factors include excessive wetness of the ear canal and trauma. The most common organisms causing otitis externa are pseudomonas which is the most common cause, followed by Staphylococcus aureus. Other organisms include diphtheroids and viridens streptococci. Signs and symptoms of otitis externa include ear pain with manipulation of the outer ear, conductive hearing loss, edema, erythema, otorrhea, and preauricular lymphadenopathy. Diagnosis is typically clinical, but a CT scan may be required if there is suspicion of temporal bone invasion. Management of otitis externa is mostly symptomatic treatment, however. Topical otic antibiotics and analgesics may be used. The first-line antibiotics are fluoroquinolones. Alternatives include aminoglycosides, which can cause ototoxicity, and neomycin, which can cause contact dermatitis. Analgesics such as NSAIDs can be used for pain management. Prevention strategies include using alcohol wipes after getting wet and wearing earplugs. Complications of otitis externa can include a severe infection known as malignant otitis externa. Malignant otitis externa is a serious infection that can invade into the temporal or mastoid bone, resulting in associated cranial nerve abnormalities, particularly affecting the facial and vestibular nerves. Signs and symptoms of malignant otitis externa include conductive hearing loss, severe unrelenting ear pain, and osteomyelitis of the skull base and temporomandibular joint. Diagnosis is typically made through otoscopy, which may reveal granulation tissue and edema of the external auditory canal. Management of malignant otitis externa involves the use of intravenous anti-pseudomonal antibiotics such as piperacillin or ticarcillin. Moving on with disorders of the ear, next is mastoiditis. Mastoiditis is an infection of the mastoid bone, which is located behind the ear. Risk factors for mastoiditis include acute or chronic otitis media, which is an infection that extends into the air cells of the mastoid bone, and Wegener's granulomatosis, an autoimmune disease that causes inflammation of the blood vessels. Signs and symptoms of mastoiditis include tenderness and erythema of the mastoid bone, and anterior and inferior displacement of the pinna, which is the visible part of the ear that resides outside of the head. Diagnosis is typically clinical, but a temporal bone CT scan may be used to evaluate for bony invasion, which will appear as loss of trabecular bone. Management of mastoiditis involves the use of intravenous antibiotics targeting upper respiratory tract organisms. Myringotomy, a surgical procedure to relieve pressure caused by excessive buildup of fluid or to drain pus from the middle ear, may also be performed. If there is presence of bony destruction, a mastoidectomy may be necessary. Moving on to the next pathology, Cholesteatoma. Cholesteatoma is an abnormal growth of skin in the middle ear behind the eardrum. It can be acquired often due to chronic otitis media or tympanostomy tubes, or it can be congenital. The pathophysiology of cholesteatoma involves the overgrowth of keratin debris, which is squamous epithelium, within the middle ear. Signs and symptoms of cholesteatoma include conductive hearing loss due to erosion of the ossicles, chronic malodorous otorrhea, otalgia, vertigo, and tinnitus. Diagnosis is typically made through otoscopy, which may reveal a white plaque on the tympanic membrane or a retraction pocket behind the tympanic membrane with granulation tissue and skin debris. CT or MRI scans may be used to determine the extent of extracranial and intracranial involvement. Management of cholesteatoma typically involves tympanomastoid surgery with ossicular reconstruction. Complications of cholesteatoma can include meningitis, brain abscess, cranial nerve palsies, and intracranial expansion and erosion. Presbycusis is our next disorder. Presbycusis is characterized by age-related sensory neural hearing loss. Certain factors can lead to presbycusis occurring at an earlier age, such as exposure to loud noises, chronic otitis media, autotoxic medications, and genetics. The pathophysiology of presbycusis involves the degeneration of hair cells at the cochlear base, which results in decreased high-frequency hearing. However, low-frequency hearing is typically maintained. Signs and symptoms of presbycusis include chronic decreased symmetrical hearing loss bilaterally. Patients may have tinnitus or vertigo, and they may have difficulty hearing in loud environments due to competing background noise. However, they often maintain good hearing in quiet one-on-one environments. Family members may notice an increased volume of appliances, such as the TV or radio. Diagnosis is typically clinical and can be confirmed with audiometry. Management of presbycusis often involves the use of hearing aids. Now let's move on to discuss Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is a condition characterized by the reactivation of the varicella zoster virus, or VZV, in the ear. This is the same virus that causes chickenpox and shingles. Signs and symptoms of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome include vesicles, or small, fluid-filled blisters, along the auditory canal. Patients may experience ipsilateral facial nerve palsy, which is paralysis on the same side of the face as the affected ear. Otalgia, or ear pain, is also common. In addition to these symptoms, balance, taste, hearing, and lacrimation may be affected if other cranial nerves, specifically cranial nerves 5, 7, or 10, are involved. Diagnosis of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is typically clinical based on the patient's symptoms and physical examination. Management of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome involves antiviral medication, specifically valacyclovir, and prednisone, a type of steroid, to reduce inflammation and help manage symptoms. Other infectious pathologies of the ear that result in vesicles is bullous myringitis. This condition is characterized by the formation of bullae and vesicles on the tympanic membrane, typically following an infection such as acute otitis media. The most common causative agent of bullous myringitis is mycoplasma, a type of bacteria. Treatment for bullous myringitis typically involves the use of macrolides, a class of antibiotics effective against mycoplasma. Topical analgesics may also be used to manage pain associated with this condition. We will conclude this subsection by discussing the interpretation of tuning fork results in the evaluation of hearing loss. Tuning fork tests such as the Weber and Rinne tests are used to differentiate between conductive and sensorineural hearing loss. In a normal hearing situation, the Weber test will show no lateralization, meaning the sound is heard equally in both ears. The Rinne test will show that air conduction is greater than bone conduction. In conductive hearing loss, the Weber test will show lateralization to the affected ear, meaning the sound is heard more clearly in the ear with hearing loss. The Rhin test will show that bone conduction is greater than air conduction in the affected ear. In sensorineural hearing loss, the Weber test will show lateralization to the non-affected ear, meaning the sound is heard more clearly in the ear without hearing loss. The RIN test will show that air conduction is greater than bone conduction, which is the normal result, but it's important to note that this is, in the context of the Weber test, showing lateralization to the non-affected ear.